Hey, thanks for listening to the Bellevue Christian Church podcast. We're a church in Bellevue, Pennsylvania, where ordinary people are learning to live everyday life like Jesus. We believe that one way to learn that life is by engaging with an ancient but active collection of books called the Bible every single week. I'm just going to say this ahead of time. Uh, I did a Tough mutter yesterday on zero training, and I could barely peel myself out of bed this morning. So the fact that I'm here is already miraculous. So you can just say some prayers for me today. It's if you see me leaning on this pulpit at any time, it's not for intensity. It's simply for support. Um, so... Uh, I'm glad to be with you guys this morning. As Isaac said, you know, we got a big fall coming up, lots of great stuff for kids, for teens. We have uh, everyday groups. If you're already establishing your faith, you want to grow more, that's for you. If, you wanna, if you're bringing a friend to faith or you're exploring faith yourself, Alpha is for you. All that stuff's getting started in the next few weeks. And today we're also starting our fall series as we are in season nine of a series we started like three years ago. We started this in December of 2020. Um, it's a series we started a while back. You can go back to the previous slide. I'll get to that one in a minute. No worries. Um, and we started this one about three years ago. It's called This is Jesus. It's a multi-season series on the gospel according to Luke, one of the four accounts we have of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we've been reimagining this gospel, this document, as if it were a modern-day docu-series or something like that, because that's really what it is. This is the ancient version of a docu-series. It's weaving together lots of different things, archival writings, which is what we have in the Old Testament. We have eyewitness interviews, people who were there. Luke says that I'm talking to people who actually saw these events unfold. You can go talk to them yourselves. And then with that expert commentary, trying to navigate and pull meaning out of all these events as it tells the story of Jesus in dozens of episodes spanning multiple seasons. And so as a whole, it's an inside look at the conversations and controversies surrounding his rise from humble roots in Nazareth to his eventual crucifixion in Jerusalem, and then the twist ending that creates a movement that's still going strong 2,000 years later, the reason we're in this room today. And so we've already been through eight seasons of this. Eight seasons is a lot to summarize and unpack, so I'm going to give you the 40,000-foot view of this. And we've covered a lot of ground, but it starts with Jesus being born. There's these miraculous circumstances around his birth, Um, and then he kind of disappears from the scene for a little bit, and then we pick up again about 30 years later, where he's now a grown man, and he's baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist, before beginning his own ministry. And in his ministry, he's got one core message, and it is this, that the kingdom of God is at hand, Repent and believe the good news. And that's the summary of his message. Everywhere he's going, he's proclaiming that same message, in particular in the neighborhoods surrounding this region called Galilee, but he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's proclaiming this message. And as he's doing that, he's also demonstrating that that's true. He's not just saying, look, the kingdom of God is here. He's saying, let me prove it to you. And here's what he does. He goes right after Satan's two strongholds, demons and disease. And so he starts casting out demons wherever he can. He says, wherever you see the finger of God casting out demons, I mean, the kingdom of God is showing up. And that's why you see him casting out demons throughout the gospel of Luke, using his authority over that. You see him healing people of disease of every type, men and women, young and old, anything that he encounters, he is healing people of these diseases. So he's proclaiming, he's demonstrating. As he's doing so, he's building a movement of followers. He's recruiting people from across the social spectrum. He's inviting them into his group who are going to be called disciples. Everybody say disciples. 
that's where we are. That's where we fit into this story. We too, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a disciple. And those are students of Jesus who are learning from him how to live in his kingdom. Or as we like to say around here, how to experience and live into the life that you're made for. And so he's teaching these disciples how to live and ex- into and experience the lives that they're made for. And so as he's doing this, though, it's not just without controversy. Jesus isn't just walking around uh, on rainbows and clouds all day without anybody being upset with him. People are fired up about what he's saying. The religious elite at the time, known as Pharisees. Everybody say Pharisees. They're this Jewish renewal movement that's trying to purify Israel so that God will show up and reestablish the kingdom of Israel, all these different things. They're believing this, and then Jesus shows up on the scene, and he's a threat to their spiritual authority. And so they're trying to figure out some way to bring him down. And multiple times it is now said that they're trying to get him killed, but they don't have the authority to do so. So they're trying to get the secular authorities involved with that, and we'll see that speed up today. And all of the while, he's been moving toward the center of the Jewish world the center of the spiritual, political, social, economic landscape. He's been headed toward this city called Jerusalem. And at the end of the last season, he finally arrives in Jerusalem to huge fanfare. There are tons of people who are excited, who have heard the rumors about what he's done, who have already put together the story about what they think he's going to do now that he's arrived in Jerusalem. He arrives in Jerusalem, and the first place he goes is to the temple grounds, the center of that world. And he's begun to find himself in a series of controversies right as the biggest festival in the Jewish world is beginning to start and the city has swelled to its largest size. That's the big high view of how we got to where we are. If you want another view, um, the Bible Project uh, is one of our favorite resources around here, and they create these animated flyovers of everything I just said. And so I'd encourage you to go check those out because it gives you a, uh, an update. It gets you right at the speed of where we're at. I use them when I read the Bible. I often look at, give me the flyover of Luke or First Peter so I can get the big idea. You can go check those out on your own. So now we're in season nine. We're in season nine, and we're in the last week of Jesus's life and ministry. And it mostly is going to center on a series of escalating controversies over the course of fall with the religious elite. There's this growing alliance between the religious elite and then the secular authorities of Jesus's time to get Jesus killed. And there's this one person who's already on the inside of his movement who's going to help usher that in. We're going to get Jesus's final teaching to his followers around a meal. And this is the second to last season. Some of you are like, this isn't the last. No, there's still another one. It's the second to last season uh, of this. And the last season is going to cover his last 24 hours. And it's going to be leading up to Easter in the coming year um, with a couple weeks after. So that'll be season 10. And in the opening episode of this series, in the opening episode of this season, in one of the controversies that Jesus is in, so he's already been in a series and we're picking up in the middle of that, Jesus makes his most direct comment on the relationship between politics and the church. Some of you just got triggered. I'm sorry. As I mentioned politics, I did. I opened up the text this week and I was like, ah, like, oh no, (laughs) not that one, not this one. Like, I'm not ready. You know, brought me back to some places. Um, And in doing so, though, as he gives this direct comment, in doing so, here's what I think he's going to do for us. He's going to give us a vision for political engagement that I think is coming at the right time, that if you put it wisely into practice over the next 18 months, here's what I think make a promise this morning. I think it might keep you from losing your soul, wrecking your relationships, and damaging the witness of the church. How many of you want, to, want that? Anybody? Okay. You guys want to not ruin Thanksgiving this year. Okay. 
I can't promise it's not going to get you crucified, though. That's what happened to Jesus. So that said, uh, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 20, verses 20 through 26. It's going to be our text for today. Uh, if you have your phone, you can whip it open on your phone as well using the Bible app, version. Um, it's also all going to be up on the screen. We're going to be in Luke, one of the three gospel accounts, Luke chapter 20, verses 20 through 26. We're going to read it as we go and unpack it as we move through this sermon. And so just for context, again, Jesus is on the temple grounds. He's at the center of the Jewish world, and he's right after this controversies surrounding his authority. He gave a not-so-subtle parable about a vineyard that made people want to kill him even more. And here's the text for how this episode opens. It says this, they watched closely. Everybody say, watched closely. We'll talk about who they are in just a second. They watched closely, and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous so that they could catch him in what he said, to hand him over to the governor's rule and authority. Luke chapter 20, verse 20. And so at this point in his life and ministry, everything Jesus is doing is being watched. Right? All of the fun, all the healing, all of that kind of stuff is now beginning to zero in, and they're looking for an opportunity to kill him. At this point, the religious elite and authorities of his day, they want to bring him down. And so he's being watched. And if we go back a few verses, you see he's being watched by the scribes and the chief priests, who were the leaders on the temple grounds. And other gospel accounts say that there's an alliance forming between this one group called the Pharisees, this Jewish renewal movement, and this other group called the Herodians, who are supporters of the Roman Empire. And so the Pharisees want, you know, they're these religious authorities, but they don't have the authority to kill people, but they want Jesus dead. And so they need to find a way to get him in trouble with the secular authorities. Um, and that's what they're trying to do here, because they want to bring him down. And so they're trying to get Jesus to make some claims and some commentary that might be able to be interpreted politically so they can get him in some hot water and finally bring him down. So as a reminder, all of this is unfolding in something called the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is a political kingdom that ruled over at the time God's people, the Jews. They were not their own kingdom. They were, they were under a, a bigger kingdom called the Roman Empire. And at its height is this massive empire. It touches three different continents, Spain in the west, Great Britain in the north, the Sahara in the south, Judea in the east. It's ruled by an emperor known as a Caesar who is seen as divine by people. It has, it's broken up into different provinces who are ruled by different governors including Judea, where Jerusalem is, and then each province is taxed. You know, we understand this concept in order to support the massive infrastructure of the Roman Empire, military campaigns, palaces, uh, all those kinds of things, wine and cheese nights, whatever. All that kind of stuff is being supported by the taxes. And so there are different responses by people. You can imagine this. Like, if you're the Jews living in the Roman Empire, there are different responses. People have different feelings. How do I navigate this empire? There are people like the zealots who violently resisted. They were like stabbing people in crowds, trying to figure out how to stir things up and stir up a revolution. There were the Sadducees who compromised with Rome. They're like, let's get cozy with power. Like, let's make the most of it and at least get a better paycheck and get some more power out of this. You have the Pharisees who weren't exactly in the middle, but they're like, we're not willing to do a revolution. We're also not willing to just do nothing and compromise. We're just kind of like, just keep the peace. Like, we don't want to get involved. As long as we keep the peace, everything is fine. And what people are trying to do now is they're trying to pin Jesus down. They're trying to say, Jesus, where do you land? Where do you land politically? What is this kingdom you've been talking about all about? How are you going to navigate Roman politics? Because we have all these other groups. Which group are you going to side with? Jesus. And so what we're about to get is his most direct comment on politics. But the thing to realize is that this might be his most direct comment, but it's not the only thing he says with political implications. Up until this point, he's been talking about, remember what we just said from the very beginning, what has been his message? That the kingdom of God is at hand. 
that language has often been neutralized by us, but the reality is the language of the kingdom is very political sounding, especially if you're the Roman Empire and you have this guy who's walking around Judea, one of your provinces under this governor that you're not really a huge fan of and you don't think is doing a good job anyways, and you have this, this guy building this movement of people who are responding to and getting involved in this thing called the kingdom of God, and they're beginning to move toward the capital city, and there's all these people there, and people are calling him the Christ, and he's like, what does that mean? He's like, our Messiah, they're like, oh yeah, it's just the promised Davidic king who's going to come back and restore all of Israel. You can imagine how this might begin to feel like a threat to the empire. And so you have Jesus in the midst of this moment, in the midst of this huge empire, beginning to talk about something called the kingdom, and everybody's trying to pin him down, and they're trying to say, what kind of kingdom is this? What are you going to do when you get here? And here's what I want to say, though, for us, as they were watching Jesus trying to figure out, and this is what I believe about the church in our own times, that people are going to be watching they already are. People are watching how the church navigates the political landscape of our cultural moment. People are watching us closely. I don't think there are spies in the room necessarily, um, <laughs> but people are watching us closely. They're watching how the church navigates the political landscape of our cultural moment, whether we like it or not. And that can be a good thing, but most times it ends up being a bad thing. We don't live in the Roman Empire, but we do live in the United States, which, depending on who you ask, is an empire in its own right. And we're called what's called a constitutional republic, just doing a little bit of politics here for us. Uh, 101, we elect representatives to govern the country according to the framework set by the Constitution. That's what it means to live in a constitutional republic. And so, but like God's people living in the Roman Empire, there's lots of opinions for how the church ought to engage politically in our cultural moment. Here's what's often happened, though is that for many, what people have seen and the way they've seen, especially over the past few years, the church engage in our cultural moment and throughout history is often another reason for people to write off the church. People already have plenty of reasons to write off Jesus in the church, plenty of reasons. But often the way that we engage the political landscape has become yet another reason. In fact, as I've talked to people who are part of Gen Z or young adults, often what I've found is that one of the reasons they want nothing to do with the church, one of the stated reasons, I know there are other reasons as well, is often watching the way the church engages politically. But what I believe, and this is what this sermon is about, is I don't think it has to be that way. I think there's a way for the church to create a compelling alternative to people. It might still get us crucified. It might still get us hated, I'm not promising that, but to create something better as people are watching. The best thing in the world, just as it was for Jesus, just for us, is actually that people are watching us. And the question is, what are we going to do when the eyes of the world are on the church and how we navigate the cultural landscape? People were watching Jesus. They were watching how he was going to navigate the, cultural, the political landscape of the first century. They are watching how we're going to do it as well, especially over the next 18 months. And I think I want to figure out how to navigate it wisely. That doesn't give people unnecessary reasons to dismiss Christianity. And if we're going to do that, we have to look to Jesus and how he navigates this conversation. So with that in mind, let's look at the question they ask. They don't just say, Jesus, tell us about your politics. They say this. It says, they question him, teacher, we know that you speak, the, speak and teach correctly, and you don't show partiality, but teach truthfully the way of God. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So what they do is they ask him a specific question that's meant to help give him a sense of his vision. They ask him specifics 
to get a sense of what it is he's all about. In particular, they ask him about taxes. Many scholars think the poll tax, which was a tax levied on Jews, paid directly to the Roman government that was funding whatever the government was spending their money on on the time, military, palaces, all that other stuff. But the question's about taxes, but this isn't about taxes, okay? This isn't about, the, the point of this sermon is not like what you should do in the first century about taxes. Like that's not a question any of us are wrestling with. And that's not even what they care about. Taxes is just a gateway to get into Jesus' political vision. They're trying to gain access. The key is taxes. They're trying to gain access to Jesus' political vision because our political vision, whether we've ever, ever named it or not, is going to inform the way that we answer the different kinds of questions that you're going to get asked in any season or the questions you're going to ask in any season of politics. Questions reveal our vision. And so they're asking him a question about taxes. But again, let me tell you, this isn't about taxes. This is about gaining access to Jesus. Tell us whose side you're on. Tell us what your vision of the kingdom is. Tell us the impact that this is going to have on life in the Roman Empire. And in this passage, I believe we get three potential political visions that can shape how the church approaches politics. One is what they wanted Jesus to say because they knew it was going to be the one that was going to get him in the most trouble. The second is what it sounds like Jesus is saying. And the third is what I believe Jesus is actually saying. And so let's talk about the first vision. This is what they wanted him to say, is to make your empire into the kingdom of God. Make your empire into the kingdom of God. This is vision one. You can think of this political vision as two completely overlapping circles, which is why it just looks like one circle there, that the kingdom of God and the political empires of this world are or should be one by whatever means necessary, through the, poll, through, through the, the polling booths or through some other way, uh, through voting or through violence, whatever the case may be, make your empire into the kingdom of God. This is most likely what his opponents wanted him to say at the time because this is the one that would have gotten him in the most trouble with the governing authority. Right, this is what the zealots wanted. Jesus had a few zealots. There was a guy he had, like, um, he, that he appointed an apostle named simply called Simon the Zealot. You have Simon Peter, and then you have this other guy, Simon the Zealot. Right? He's coming out of this world. And these guys have this warrior spirit, this nationalistic agenda. They want to replace Roman authority via protest, violence, if necessary, whatever it takes. And in fact, right around when Jesus was born, in the year 6, there was a guy named Judas the Galilean, which every other Judas is named after, who led this, or not just that one, sorry, Judas Maccabeus is another one that people are named after, but he led this violent revolt over the tax and the government shut it down. And so all of that is in people's imagination. And in our context, here's what I want to say. This shows up on both the left and the right in different ways. Some of you in the room maybe lean to the left, and you're like, oh, yeah, I totally see how the right does this. And you're, you're already pinning down the other side. Or some of you are on the right, and you're like, oh, classic left move right here. This is what they do over there. Um, and what's happening, though, this is what happens when the political landscape, listen to this, is when the political landscape becomes the center of our religious life and effort. That the mission of the church is no longer make disciples of all nations. The mission of the church becomes win at the polling booth. The mission of the church becomes just this complete centralized idea of influencing politics. And our Christianity becomes enmeshed with politics. And you get the warriors of the right and the left who are trying to make the empire Christian, albeit in totally different ways. And the Christian mission centers on showing up at the polls. That's the whole idea. And historically, there have been episodes throughout Christian history recently and long past where this has been the case, where Christianity moves from an oppressed minority to a powerful majority and begins to try to make the empire into the kingdom of God, whatever version of that they want. 
So that's one version, one vision. That's what they want him to say, but he doesn't say that. Here's vision two, and this is what it sounds like he's saying. When you read this and you don't interpret it carefully, this is what it sounds like he's about to say. It sounds like he's saying, keep the kingdom of God out of your empire's politics. Keep the kingdom of God out of your empire's politics. You can think of this political vision as two completely separate circles side by side. The kingdom of God and the political empires of this world don't or shouldn't ever touch each other, and let's keep it that way. Often this is in reaction to the previous one. Maybe you've seen the way that Christians have tried to make the empire into the kingdom of God. You're like, well, I don't want that. Maybe I should just keep, every, keep religion out of politics. In fact, let's all just separate religion from politics completely. And on the surface, this is what it sounds like Jesus is saying. In fact, let's read what Jesus is saying, but let's read it through this lens of interpretation. It sounds like this. It says, but detecting their craftiness, he said to them, show me a denarius. A denarius is like a day's wage. It's a coin somebody might have been carrying. It has an image of Caesar on one side. And he says, whose image and inscription does it have? Caesar's, they said. Well, then he told them, and this sounds like what he's saying. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. Keep these worlds completely separate. It sounds like Jesus is advocating for this divide between there's the sacred stuff over here of Christianity and then there's the secular dirty stuff over here of politics. And you've got all the secular political stuff over here and the the church sacred stuff over here. And let's keep them as separate as we can. Let's put a dividing wall between the two. Let's not let any cross-contamination, no politics in the church, no church in politics. Leave your Christianity at the door of the polling booth and leave your politics at the door of the church. And I hear this one all the time from both unbelievers and from believers. The amount of times I've heard believers say, like, let's, let's just keep politics out of the church. I get it, and I get where that's coming from. And there's often this idea, though, that, like, don't like Christianity can touch everything but that. That's for me. I don't want to hear about politics on Sundays. On the other hand, you hear this from unbelievers as well who are frustrated by some of the ways that Christians have engaged. It's like, let's just keep religion out of it. Let's just not get, let that get involved. At its best, this looks like a classic separation of church and state, which is a good thing. And at its core, what the phrase was intended to make sure was that the church or no particular denomination didn't just rule over the government and then oppress everybody else because that's what was happening when that phrase came into existence. At its worst, though, the idea of separation of church and state uh, goes to levels that it was never intended to go, which is this idea that nobody should be able to bring their religious values into shaping how they think about politics. But nobody's actually able to do that, whether you're religious or non-religious. Nobody can leave their values at the door. Like some of you in this room, you're like, look, I'm exploring faith. I'm not sure how I think about all this. I don't consider myself religious. At the same time, if that's you in the room, you still have values. You still have things that, that you believe that maybe you have a foundation for, things you care about, and there there might be really good reasons why you care about them. And I would encourage you to not, nobody would say, leave all that at the door when you go in to vote. Try to just be neutral. Like, nobody can do that. That's impossible. Values are built into who you are, and it's the same thing with Christians. It's like, whether you're religious or non-religious, all of us have these things that we're going to be bringing into the way that we approach all of life. You can't walk into work and just leave your values at the door. There might be different ways that you those values work themselves out, but we always have things that we believe that are going to be shaping our approach to everything, politics, work, family, everything. You can't just ever just leave it at the door. It doesn't work. It's not possible. So that cannot be what Jesus is saying. It's not possible for us to do that. So this is why, in light of what he says here and in light of the rest of the New Testament, there's a third alternative vision, and it's to live in your empire as a citizen of the kingdom of God. 
In this vision, you can think of it as two somewhat overlapping circles, but the kingdom of God is the one on top, and the political empires of this world is the one on the bottom. The kingdom of God and the political empires of this world aren't completely separate, and they aren't completely overlapping or the same. There's vast differences sometimes between the two, but it means you might participate in the empires of this world. Sometimes you'll collaborate with it, and sometimes you'll confront it when it's unjust or guilty of evil, but because your ultimate allegiance is not to your empire or your emperor, but to God. And that's going to shape the way that you give your empire what it's due. And so whatever, you're doing whatever you can to give God's what is God's as you navigate giving Caesar what is Caesar, giving your empire what belongs to it. Because as Christians, this is where you have to realize everything Jesus has been saying about the kingdom has implications for our politics. Jesus has been saying about the kingdom that the kingdom is at hand. He didn't say it's all here. He didn't say it's completely showed up. He said it's here, but there's also a part of which that it's not here yet. So the kingdom of God has arrived, and it's now influencing things, but it also hasn't arrived. People often call this the now and not yet. Everybody say the now and not yet. I had you say that instead of inaugurated eschatology, which is really what we're talking about. And it's this idea that God has inaugurated a kingdom, but he is still fulfilling it in the future. It's going to impact the way that we, uh, we think about politics, but it's also an understanding that in the meantime, there are going to be emperors and kingdoms that are going to rise and fall that are ultimately going to be held accountable to Jesus, the true king, when he returns and makes all things new. And so what Jesus is saying here, and many commentators have pointed out, is like, yes, Caesar's image is on the coin, right? So yeah, there's a part of which in which we participate in the kingdoms of this world. But the question that every commentator asks right here is, whose image is on Caesar? And whose image is on you and me? Go back to Genesis 1, it's God's image has been imprinted on us, and even on Caesar, on Caesar and on citizens. And so who do Caesar and citizens owe their lives to? Who are Caesar and citizens accountable to? Ultimately to God. And so at the end of the day, every citizen and every Caesar, every government, every constitution is going to be held accountable to God's standard. This is what Paul understands later, this living in between, this living at this overlap of these worlds. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. This is the same Paul who at other times like, will happily claim that he's a Roman citizen when it benefits him. Like He'll constantly be like, hey, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. I deserve a better trial. Like He'll constantly take advantage of his citizenship. But yet he also knows at the core, his citizenship is in heaven. And notice what he doesn't say. He says, we eagerly wait for a savior from there. He says, we don't eagerly await a savior on November whatever when somebody is voted in. That's not where we await our savior from. We don't eagerly await a savior in, some, uh, in a particular policy. We actually await a savior who is from there, who is from heaven. We are waiting for Jesus, the king, who will make all things new. It's why in some texts he can talk about honoring the emperor. But the same person who says that in one text will uh, undermine the empire in the next and refuse to go along with it and be imprisoned for it. This is what people like Martin Luther King Jr. understood. He had a vision for the kingdom of God that influenced his dream for the United States. Nobody would want to, here's the thing, for anybody who says leave your religion at the door, you also have to apply that to Martin Luther King Jr. Because he didn't leave his religion at the door. He let it shape 
the way he approached politics. It was his vision of the kingdom that influenced his vision for the United States. He understood the limits of it. He understood that there's work to do. He understood that with sin and death in the world, it will never be completely there until Jesus returns. But I love how James K. Smith summarizes it in his book on uh, politics. He says this, that dream was the kingdom of God, and King learned it at church, but it wasn't just for the church. It was a vision for what the world was called to be. He understood that the world was never going to be the kingdom of God, but that didn't stop him from dreaming of applying the best of that kingdom into the political landscape of his time. And so this is all in response to a question about taxes. And Jesus doesn't say on the one hand what they want him to say and what the church is often guilty of, just enmeshing Christianity with the empire through whatever means necessary. On the other hand, it's not what he sounds like he's saying when you're just doing this quick interpretation of it. And it sounds like he's trying to separate religion and the church and Christianity and politics, which nobody can actually do this kind of misguided attempt at separation of church and state. Rather, what he's advocating for is away from these simple paths. We always want the simplest path, but we don't always get that. He's advocating for a more complicated approach that requires the wisdom of living as a citizen of the current and future kingdom within the political empires of this world. So how do we do that well? We have to have that political vision in mind. And here's some practical advice that I think can go a long way if you forget everything else keep you from losing your soul, wrecking your relationships, harming the witness of the church over the next 18 months is this. Don't fall into the trap of either or politics. Do not fall into the trap of either or politics. That's what they were trying to get Jesus to do. Do not fall into the trap of either or politics. And I admit that it is a task that is particularly challenging in a cultural climate that is dominated by two parties that are constantly pressing us toward either or politics. Not unlike Jesus, people from both the inside and outside the church are constantly trying to place the church in the right or the left, the GOP or the Democrats, aligned with this set of issues or that set of issues. And we subject ourselves to this framing, and we get what ha- trapped, and it ends up unnecessarily hurting the witness of the church. Like, Jesus has asked this question about poll taxes. This is a very specific first century political issue. Like, you're not going to watch a debate today and be like, excuse me, sir, tell me about poll taxes. Like, nobody's going to be seeing that on the debates on NBC that are going to be coming up in the next 18 months. But what they're trying to do is trap him and say, do we pay taxes or not? Are you anti-Rome or are you pro-Rome? And they're putting him on this false either-or, and he refuses it in the way they're proposing it, and he finds a way around it, not because he's trying to be sneaky and avoid the question, but because he's saying that that doesn't work, that framing doesn't work. And all the time, though, this is how things are framed in this either-or all of the time. Are you for immigrants and refugees, or are you for national security? Are you for the poor, or are you for personal responsibility? Are you for women, or are you for the unborn? Are you for minorities, or are you for law enforcement? Are you for the climate, or are you for businesses? Are you a Democrat or a Republican? How often have you heard a question framed this way? In an either-or. And so often, instead of ever pressing back, and ever instead of pushing back, we just get trapped right into it. And the trap is laid, and the church just walks right in all the time. And often what happens is one whole set of issues just gets packaged together under one platform, and a whole other set of issues gets packaged together under another platform, and then you're forced to embrace all or nothing in what some have called package deal uh, politics or ethics. And it, what happens is that it looks like for the church, depending on what church you're a part of, often by geography alone, 
it looks like the church is completely aligned with one of those political platforms. And so to people who are exploring faith, like if you're in this room and you're exploring faith, what often happens is it looks like in order to become a Christian, not only do you have to have faith in Jesus, we're like, yes, uh, faith alone saves us, and also subscribing to this political party that I'm a part of. That's often what it feels like to non-Christians looking in, is yes, faith, but also voting for my preferred candidate. That's why one of the best articles that he's written, Timothy Keller, who passed away this year, wrote an article with, I think, honestly, you just need the title, and then you can read the other rest of the five-minute article, and it's this, how do Christians fit into the two-party system? They don't. Let me read that again. How do Christians fit into the two-party system? They don't. Some of you are already dismissing, you're like, ah, oh, classic New York Times. You're like, you know, you're already, you're already done. You're like, oh, that's just the opinion section. It's not the reality section. Like, you know, or whatever. Or like, or it's Tim Keller. Like, oh, I don't know. You know, and so everybody's got these feelings already, already. I already know this is happening as I say that. But in the article, he explains why, right? He says, for one, as we've already said, it makes it look like you have to be part of a certain party to be a Christian. He says, it's okay to have political affiliations. I'm not saying you all need to go out and be independents. The reality is it's okay to have those, but it's realizing that that's a preference, not necessarily part of being a Christian. And as skeptics, what often happens is it looks like a voting block for power is what the church looks like. A second thing he notes in this article is that there's not always a direct line, right, from biblical principles to policies. Like, we look at biblical principles throughout the scriptures, and there's not always a direct line to say, okay, now here's what the policy looks like for the government. Yes, governments have to have policies, but there's not always a direct line between a biblical principle and a policy. There's a lot of room for wisdom and what that looks like. And then the third thing is that if you're actually trying to be faithful to Scripture, which I think we are, like I think we hold this, and that's what we say at this church, is that we hold biblical uh, theology, we hold biblical authority. If we're really trying to be uh, faithful to the authority of Scripture, it means that you're never going to be able to fully subscribe to one platform's way of packaging the issues, ever. You will never be able to fully subscribe to that. And at this point, you're probably thinking or saying or whispering to your spouse, okay, Austin, that's all well and good, but how do you propose that we do that? (laughs) That's not practical. How do we do that? And I'm just saying this, it's always going to be easier to fall back into the trap of the either or. But as Christians, we're called to more often than not challenging to the challenging and lonely road of wisdom. And so following the pattern of Jesus, I'm going to give you three quick things that can help you navigate conversations. Just three really quick suggestions. First thing is this, is that as you're navigating conversations with others over the next 18 months and things are getting framed in this either or, which is going to happen to you, and you're going to find yourself doing this as well. First thing is this, is look for the why behind the what. Look for the why behind the what. When you're being asked political questions... Do what you can to discern the person's motives, right? We don't always know, because we're not Jesus, what a person's motives are for asking us. Some people are just genuinely curious. Like, what do you think as a Christian about this? There's genuine curiosity. There's also, like, trying to trap you, which is what this, that these people were doing to Jesus in this scene. Does this person have genuine curiosity about what you believe, or is there ulterior motives? Motives determine how you respond, and that's going to shape it. So try to discern and unpack, and that often comes with asking questions, which is the second thing. Look for what you can ask before you answer. Often when somebody asks us a question, the first thing we do is be like, bleh, here's all my thoughts on everything. Especially, who are my external processors in the room? Anyone? All right. You know who you are? You're just saying words, and you're hoping you find the end of that sentence at some point. (laughs) You know, that's me. That's me. And so often, especially in online political discourse, we are prone to immediately fire off an answer or comment to a question made by someone else. Like, man, the comment section of any art, oh, 
scary place. Uh, and the first thing that Jesus does, though, is he asks good questions. If you really want to follow Jesus well, become the best question asker in the room. And not like leading questions, just ask great questions. Practice what's called empathetic curiosity. Just really want to listen, try to understand where people are coming from. We, this is the alpha approach. At alpha, what do we do? We don't give a lot of answers. We just ask really good questions. And so when you're finding yourself in political conversations, you, everything in you is going to want to say, but you're wrong, and this is why, and everything's wrong, and the world's falling apart. Like, that's what you're going to want to do. But the best thing you can do is to say, hey, where's that coming from? When did you start thinking that? And it helped try to understand where that person is coming from. He asked them just simply like, hey, could you tell me about the, the, the denarius? And he, he kind of trapped them, honestly, because you're like, okay, well, obviously I now see that you are participating in the economy of this empire, and now we can frame this completely different. But you can ask things like, tell me more about what you think. What made you think that? Or this seems really important to you. Why is that? Where is that coming from? Doesn't mean you agree. Doesn't mean you affirm. You're just asking questions. Seek to be understood, or seek to understand before you're understood. And then the third thing is try to look for the both and in the either or that's being framed for you. Some of you are like, that's compromising. Like, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not a squishy centrist or whatever, like, whatever it is. Like, I get it. I understand what that feels like. But it's not. You're asking, you're saying, is there a way, when you begin to understand what did that person really value that's informing their approach to policies and politics, when you understand that, you can say, maybe there's a way of actually showing that you also value that thing they value. You might not want to put it in practice in the same way they want to, but you can find a way to maybe show that you also value that thing that they value. Um, and it's not a complete endorsement of the other side's you know, uh, political package. Again, this is what Jesus did in his question on taxes. He found a different way. One of the most helpful things I've come across in the past few years is something called the AND campaign, which looks for some of these both-and opportunities without compromising on the convictions of Scripture. In their book, Compassion and Conviction, here's what they write. They say, Christians must be critical thinkers and question the assumptions and conclusions presented to us. We shouldn't simply accept the issues as they've been framed by political parties, often in this either-or, ideological tribes or the media. But Christians must make sure biblical doctrine is the framework from which we base our explanations of political and cultural questions. And once we frame an issue properly, which often is not in that either-or, we're able not only to respond in a more accurate and faithful manner, but also to disarm the false choices that can entangle us. I want to see what that would look like. And again, you're probably whispering in your heart right now. You're like, fine. (laughs) I get it. Okay, fine. I can keep that in mind online and my family to get together in a couple of months. I'll try my best. But at the end of the day, on the first Tuesday in November, I still have to vote for somebody. I still have to choose. I still have to make this either or, whether or not I agree on their entire platform or not. I can't just vote for Jesus, right? Although you can, it's just not going to go well. Like, <laughs> and I do realize that it's complicated. And I'm not up here to say, because that's not what the church is here to do. I'm not up here to tell you who to vote for. I realize it's complicated, but what I recommend, and what I, just following in the way of Jesus, is to think more critically about it. Be attentive to how you talk about it. Do a lot more listening. And remember that the president has less power than you think. It doesn't all come back to that. There's so much more we could say about this, but in this series, that's all we get to get, get to really about it. That said, there's a few, rec- a few resources I recommend in addition to that five-minute article from Keller. The first thing is we did a series in 2020 called Putting Politics in Its Place. Eight weeks on politics. I will never, for the love of God, do that again in my life. 
Um, I did it to a camera at the time, to, and then that was beamed into all of your homes. And uh, I don't know how many things were thrown at televisions during that series, but nonetheless, you can listen to that. It really, I think it does a big biblical sweep that does a lot more than we can in this. Another book is that, or another thing is that book, Conviction and Compassion by Justin Gibney and Michael Ware. Another book is a book by Caitlin Sheth called The Liturgy of Politics. And all of those are really helpful resources for beginning to navigate this. And if you want to navigate it well in, you know, six to 12 months when things start to get uh, heated up a little bit, start by reading some of that now and thinking well about Jesus's political vision in our time. If you do this well, I believe you can not only keep from losing your soul, wrecking your relationships, and harming the witness of the church. I think you might actually help us work toward providing our city with a compelling alternative that actually makes people want to know more about Jesus rather than dismiss him. When Jesus did this, when he refused to be boxed into the false either or because he was coming from a political vision that instead of trying to make them the same or make them separate, was willing to walk the the lonely and complicated road of wisdom. When Jesus said this, listen to what he said. It says, they were not able to catch him in what he said in public. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. What would it look like for us to do the same in our own time? be the kinds of people who instead of catching us in what we say because we just jump right into how people are framing things, people are actually amazed or caught off guard or surprised by our responses and answers because they don't fit into the paradigms that they're used to and they become silent. What if that's how people reacted to the way the church engaged in the political landscape of our day because the church isn't afraid to confront the left or the right when necessary and collaborate whenever possible? What if the church led the way in breaking a fractured nation out of a hopeful, hopelessly polarized us first then political landscape where everybody is putting their hope in politics and gave them an alternative, something better, even if it meant sometimes in doing so, we lose people at this church who completely embrace the politics of the right or the left as we have here in the past. And even if it means that there are always going to be people who hate us for it. What if at least if they hate us, it's compelling? It's compelling. At the end of the day, sometimes you still get crucified. That's what happened to Jesus. At the end of the day, he was crucified on a Roman cross, as we're going to talk about in season 10, because the religious elite were able to convince the political elite that he was a threat to the Roman Empire. And a cross isn't just like a, a creative way to kill somebody. A cross was a public billboard to say, hey, to anybody who's thinking about, um, you know, coming against the empire, if anybody's thinking about revolt, let me just show you what happens to people like that. Because they knew that even if not now, someday, this movement was going to have implications. And so they killed Jesus on a Roman cross. And the good news, though, is that the same Jesus who was crucified rose again three days later. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, or what? He sits at the right hand of God, reigning over every nation as Lord, despite whoever is in office. And one day he will return, and his kingdom will be the only kingdom, and he will hold all of us, citizens and Caesars, accountable. There will be no more elections because he sits on the throne forever. He doesn't care who voted for him. He will sit on the throne forever and ever. And in the meantime, As Christians, we navigate the political landscape with wisdom, but also with hope. Knowing that our hope is not in any political ruler, is not in any political system, any party or president or Caesar, as we are so prone to do. But it is only in Jesus, who is Lord over all. Let's pray. Jesus, we're sorry for the way that we engage the political landscape of our time, often getting trapped 
uh, in the things, in the ways that, in the, in the questions that people frame for us poorly, in the questions that we, we've lost our imagination, we've lost our creativity. May we as a church provide the world with a compelling alternative, a church that doesn't place its hope in politics, a church that doesn't, that doesn't pretend that the church is completely separate from politics and say we're just after hearts, but actually understands, Jesus, that there are ways that we can influence society for the good. Lord, help us to be that kind of church, the kind of church that has showed up in moments throughout history that were dark, showed up with something better and compelling to the onlooking world. Help us to be those kinds of people. Jesus, in our conversations as Christians, help us to be characterized by this wisdom and hope that characterizes Christian politics that is not locked into the left or the right, but is on a different level, different plane. In your name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast for a new teaching from us every single week.